Chapter 5, Part 1 of Pioneer Work and Opening the Medical Profession to Women by Elizabeth Blackwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5, Part 1 Practical Work in America. The first seven years of New York life were years of very difficult, though steady, uphill work. It was carried on without cessation and without change from town, either summer or winter. I took good rooms in University Place, but patients came very slowly to consult me. I had no medical companionship, the profession stood aloof, and society was distrustful of the innovation. Insolent letters occasionally came by post, and my pecuniary position was a source of constant anxiety. Soon after settling down, I made an application to be received as one of the physicians in the women's department of a large city dispensary, but the application was refused, and I was advised to form my own dispensary. My keenest pleasure in those early days came from the encouraging letters received from the many valued English friends who extended across the ocean the warm sympathy they had shown in London. They strengthened that feeling of kinship to my native land, which finally drew me back to it. A correspondence with Lady Byron, which extended over some years, was particularly encouraging for the strong scientific tastes of this admirable woman, as well as her large benevolence, led her to take a steady interest in the study of medicine by women. The following is a characteristic letter from this valued friend. Brighton, December ninth, 1851. I received your letter some days ago, and have ever since longed to write to you. The business which has chiefly prevented me is of a nature to interest you. A conference, originating with Miss Carpenter, is to be held at Birmingham tomorrow between chaplains, governors of jails, magistrates, and a few ladies on the means of saving the young from sin and reforming them after its commission. I could not attend and perhaps can render as much service in absence indirectly. Miss Murray, Mr. Rathbone of Liverpool, Mrs. Jameson, and Miss Montgomery will be present. The subject of this letter is to be the magnetoscope. The pamphlet by Mr. Rudder shall be sent you. Since its publication, new discoveries have been made and amply tested, and of these I will try to give you some account. One objection received as conclusive against the reality of the magnetic influence from the operator was that the motions of the pendulum suspended from the instrument were produced solely by unconscious muscular movement on the part of the operator. Although to engineers and persons acquainted with the laws of motion, this rotation of the pendulum in the instrument appeared to be a strange new mechanical power, yet the Royal College of Physicians and the Lancet 
decreed that it should be explained by involuntary muscular movement, and one M.D. of eminence wrote a letter to me implying that believers in the magnetoscope were to be classed with Mormons. It has since been proved beyond a doubt by Mr. Rudder that the touch of the poles of a magnet or crystal to the spot before touched by the hand will be followed by movements exactly similar, the rotation being from east to west or from west to east, according as the north or south pole of the crystal is directed to the spot. After contact, it occurred to Mr. R. to try pointing only with the poles of the crystal held in his hand. The same effect ensued. What becomes of the muscular impulse theory? Another objection is now considered as fatal, that when the eyes are closed, all motion is stopped if the operator is either holding the thread or touching the magnetoscope. Ergo, they say, it is all in posture. But is there not another light thrown by this on the power of the eyes, on their electric glance? It is stated in Carpenter's Animal Physiology that a woman whose left arm was palsied could hold up a child with it as long as she looked at it. When she closed her eyes, the arm dropped. A Mr. John Dimson, well known now in Brighton, has a paralytic affection of his feet and cannot walk unless he fixes his eyes upon them. To this fact, Mr. and Mrs. Bracebridge, Florence's friends, and Lady Easthope have recently given me their attestation as eyewitnesses, and I understand that the fact is observed at German baths for lame patients. With the disposition, then, to poo-poo the discovery in London, I think it will probably be left to America, perhaps to you, to evolve the truth. Therefore, I shall feel it my duty to put you in possession of facts bearing upon it. I have, however, had the satisfaction of seeing conviction produced on the mind of one of our most distinguished geologists, who perceived the connection between the influence of magnetism and metals on the pendulum, and some of the subterranean operations, particularly mineral springs. My hand is tired and must rest. The application of magnetism to the principle of life is most satisfactory to me. The unification of the magnetism of the human head by finding that the pendulum is influenced by it, exactly as by a real magnet, that the poles correspond, the forehead being north when the person is upright. Changes take place in the recumbent position. This is when a person stands in any direction, live bodies being independently magnetic. It is the case even with an egg new laid. After boiling, that power ceases, and it is a magnet only by induction, like any other inorganic matter. In trying experiments, the feet must not be crossed, nor the legs, nor the hands clasped, nor thumbs joined. 
These attitudes all occasion the motions to stop, for they complete this circuit, analogous to electrical phenomena. After all, I have not told you what appears the most curious fact in its consequences, that, as far as yet tried, the body loses its influence on the magnetoscope in sleep. Its polarity is gone as in death. Twin brothers. On reading over what I have written, I perceive a want of explicitness, which I hope the pamphlet will make up. I will divide it into sheets to be sent in letters. With a strong feeling that the ocean is not distance, yours most truly, A. I. Noel Byron. At this time, I employed the leisure hours of a young physician in preparing some lectures on the physical education of girls, which were delivered in a basement Sunday school room in the spring of 1852. These lectures, owing to the social and professional connections which resulted from them, gave me my first start in practical medical life. They were attended by a small but very intelligent audience of ladies, and amongst them were some members of the Society of Friends, whose warm and permanent interest was soon enlisted. Indeed, my practice during those early years became very much a Quaker practice, and the institutions which sprang up later owed their foundation to the active support of this valuable section of the community. The family of Mr. Stacy B. Collins, a highly respected member of the Society of Friends, will always be affectionately remembered. They first engaged me as the family physician. Their granddaughter, now Dr. Mary B. Hussey was my first baby, and a warm friendship continues into the third generation. The names also of Robert Haydock, Merritt Trimble, and Samuel Willets will always be gratefully remembered in connection with this movement in New York. These well-known and highly respected citizens with their families gradually became our most steadfast friends. My first medical consultation was a curious experience. In a severe case of pneumonia in an elderly lady, I called in consultation a kind-hearted physician of high standing who had been present in Cincinnati at the time of my father's fatal illness. This gentleman, after seeing the patient, went with me into the parlor. There he began to walk about the room in some agitation, exclaiming, A most extraordinary case! Such a one never happened to me before. I really do not know what to do. I listened in surprise and much perplexity, as it was a clear case of pneumonia and of no unusual degree of danger until at last I discovered that his perplexity related to me, not to the patient, and to the propriety of consulting with a lady physician. I was both amused and relieved. I at once assured my old acquaintance that it need not be considered in the light of an ordinary consultation. If he were uneasy about it, 
but as a friendly talk. So finally, he gave me his best advice. My patient rapidly got well, and happily I never afterwards had any difficulty in obtaining a necessary consultation from members of the profession. In 1852, warmly encouraged by Mrs. Dr. Bellows, I published the lectures I had given under the title The Laws of Life in Reference to the Physical Education of Girls. This little work was favorably regarded by physicians. It drew forth an encouraging letter from the dean of my college to my very great gratification. It also happened to fall under Mr. Ruskin's notice and gained his valuable commendation. Being still excluded from medical companionship and from the means of increasing medical knowledge which dispensary practice affords, I finally determined to try and form an independent dispensary. In 1853, with the aid of some of my friends, a small room was engaged in a poor quarter of the town near Tompkins Square. One of my Quaker friends, Mrs. Cornelia Hussey, actively assisted in arranging drugs, covering a screen, etc. This dispensary, afterwards moved to Third Street, was opened three afternoons in each week, and I had the satisfaction during the following two years of finding it welcomed by the poor and steadily enlisting a larger circle of friends. In 1854, the Act of Incorporation for an institution where woman physicians could be available for the poor was obtained, and a few well-known citizens consented to act as trustees. The first annual report of this modest little dispensary is given in the appendix. From this very small beginning have gradually arisen the present flourishing institutions of the New York Infirmary and College for Women. It was during these first early years that, not being able to continue the expense of good consultation rooms, I determined to buy a house. A friend lent me the necessary money at fair interest, and a house in a good situation in 15th Street was selected. This transaction proved a very material assistance in many different ways and enabled me to form the home center which is so necessary to the most efficient work. In later years, also, this early experience helped me to realize more fully the fundamental importance of the great land question, or a stake in the soil, as well as other weighty social problems. The difficulties and trials encountered at this early period were severe. Ill-natured gossip, as well as insolent anonymous letters, came to me. Although I have never met with any serious difficulties in attending to my practice at all hours of the night, yet unpleasant annoyances from unprincipled men were not infrequent. Some well-dressed man would walk by my side on Broadway, saying in a low voice, "'Turn down Duane Street to the right,' or, whilst waiting for a horse-car at midnight by the city hall, 
a policeman would try to take my hand, or a group of late revelers would shout across the street, see that lone woman walking like mad, but with common sense, self-reliance, and attention to the work in hand, any woman can pursue the medical calling without risk. The heat of a New York summer also was at this time very trying to an English constitution. A letter to my sister in 1853 exclaims, Oh dear, it is so hot I can hardly write. I was called this morning to Flushing to see a sick child, and then attended my dispensary, the thermometer varying from 86 to 90 in the house, and it stood at 102 in some rooms downtown. Walk as deliberately as I would, it made my brain seem too large for my head. Flushing reminded me of the Sahara. It lay breathless under a cloudless sky, leaden with haze. In relation to mischievous gossip, it is written, These malicious stories are painful to me, for I am a woman as well as physician, and both natures are wounded by these falsehoods. Ah, I am glad I, and not another, have to bear this pioneer work. I understand now why this life has never been lived before. It is hard, with no support but a high purpose to live against every species of social opposition. I should like a little fun now and then, Life is altogether too sober. The utter loneliness of life became intolerable, and in October of 1854 I took a little orphan girl from the great emigrant depot of Randall's Island to live with me. This congenial child I finally adopted. The wisdom of such adoption is abundantly shown by an entry in my journal two years later, written on my birthday. On this bright Sunday morning, I feel full of hope and strength for the future. Kitty plays beside me with her doll. She has just given me a candy basket, purchased with a penny she had earned, full of delight, in Doctor's Birthday who will ever guess the restorative support which that poor little orphan has been to me. When I took her to live with me, she was about seven and a half years old. I desperately needed the change of thought she compelled me to give her. It was a dark time, and she did me good. Her genial, loyal, Irish temperament suited me. Now I look forward with much hope to the coming events of this year. An amusing circumstance relating to this child is worth recording. She had always been accustomed to call me doctor. On one occasion, she was present during the visit of a friendly physician. After he was gone, she came to me with a very puzzled face, exclaiming, Doctor, how very odd it is to hear a man called doctor. In December of 1855, I gave a first drawing-room address on the medical education of women. In this address, which was afterwards printed, 
it was shown that the movement was only a revival of work in which women had always been engaged, but that it was a revival in an advanced form, suited to the age and to the enlarging capabilities of women. The clear perception of the providential call to women to take their full share in human progress has always led us to insist upon a full and identical medical education for our students. From the beginning in America, and later on in England, we have always refused to be tempted by the specious offers urged upon us to be satisfied with partial or specialized instruction. On the occasion of this address, an appeal was made for assistance in collecting funds for the growth of the dispensary and the gradual formation of a hospital, as indispensable for the accomplishment of the work. A committee of three ladies was appointed at this drawing-room meeting for the purpose of beginning the difficult work of collecting a permanent fund. In 1854, my sister, Dr. Emily Blackwell, who had graduated with honor at the Medical College of Cleveland, Ohio, was pursuing her studies in Europe. There she gained invaluable surgical experience from having been generously received as assistant by Sir James Simpson in his extensive practice in female diseases. The genial character of this well-known physician was shown not only by his cordial reception of Dr. Emily as pupil and assistant, but by an amusing incident which occurred whilst his consulting rooms were filled by a waiting assembly of aristocratic patients. My sister, being a classical scholar, was often employed by the doctor in making translations or extracts for him. On one occasion, whilst thus engaged in the farthest room of the suite, he called in a low voice, Dr. Blackwell, then a little louder, Dr. Blackwell, and when the attention of all his patients was thus aroused, he called in a voice loud enough for my sister to hear, Dr. Blackwell, and then from the corner of his eye, and with intense amusement, he watched the varied expressions of surprise and dismay depicted on the countenances of his distinguished patients as they saw the approach along the suite of rooms of a lady who thus answered to the summons. End of chapter 5, part 1